Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons Podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. So hello everyone, this is Deanna Hayes, Chair of Ogletree's Multi-State Advice and Counseling Practice Group, and welcome to a very special episode of our Multi-State Monday podcast, live from sunny San Diego, California. We are here at Workplace Strategies, Ogletree's National Client Seminar, where we have several days of sessions on employment law updates and practical insights. And one of the things that we got to talk about today is Ogletree's annual benchmarking survey, which we've talked about before on the podcast episodes. This is a survey of legal decision makers at top companies, and we published the survey in April of this year, and multi-state compliance moved up from the third most challenging issue for respondents to the second most challenging issue. So this continues to be something that's in the forefront of employers' minds, and we hope that you'll find this podcast series helpful. I'm joined today by three panelists who presented today's multi-state topic at Workplace Strategies on updating your multi-state handbooks and employment agreements. So first we have Lucas Asper, a shareholder in Ogletree's Greenville office. And we've talked a bit about handbooks before during this podcast series, but there are already some new updates to share. So Lucas, you wanna say hello and also tell us how handbooks might be impacted by recent National Labor Relations Board activity. Sure, well, good morning, afternoon, evening, depending on when you're listening to this. And in general, I would say that, that issues like what you described, National Labor Relations Board developments, are absolutely going to be the number one thing driving handbook updates for most sophisticated employers especially. Um, because companies that, that are staying up to date on this stuff, they've probably already thought about paid sick leave and a lot of the different leave obligations and staying ahead on those issues. But the way the board is, is moving the target on what is good and not okay um, in different policies is definitely the biggest issue, in my opinion, in terms of what's driving a need to revisit those policies. Absolutely. And can you share some examples of policies that employers might want to review that the board would be interested in? Yeah, so it touches on far more than I think we we realize because it goes from everything from our general conduct policies where we're just talking about what's okay and what's not in terms of employee behavior and certain types of language will get the board's attention. For example, telling an employee that they need to act respectfully. Any reasonable person hears that, in my opinion at least, and says, yep, that makes sense. The board may not agree with that um, because the current board says, well, what if that inhibits their ability to to engage with other people in a way that's in furtherance of protecting their rights and that would somehow chill or refrain their ability to engage in that activity. So that's just an easy example. Confidentiality with the McLaren-McComb decision, I I mean, this is one that it absolutely has changed the game in terms of severance agreements, settlement agreements, but also your confidentiality policies. 
And whether that's in a non-disclosure agreement or in a handbook, you gotta be mindful of what the board has said there in terms of limiting those types of policies in a way that does not trample on employees' rights under Section 7 of the National Labor Relations Act. Beyond that, conflict of interest policies are something we see often in the board's radar, recording policies, um, other types of intellectual property, things that are driven to protect those interests. We just gotta be cautious that we're not reaching too far in a way that again starts kind of interfering with the confidentiality approach of the current board. Understood. And it seems like in some of the decisions that I've reviewed that the board takes issue with vague statements or overly broad statements. So is it helpful to be more specific when it comes to those policies? There's not a black and white answer, no clear right or wrong, but those are those vague types of statements like what you're referencing that we've seen repeatedly pop up in board decisions in terms of things that will get their attention. Now, if it's defined in a way that that clearly delineates what's okay and what's not and it does not interfere with rights you might be able to get away with it but the key is you just got to be intentional and you got to be mindful of this stuff what about using disclaimers within your policies the current board has made pretty clear that regardless of how good of a disclaimer you have if the policy itself is problematic a well-drafted disclaimer may not save that. I'll say it that way. And it's just in the gray area still. And so you're drawing attention to something, but maybe not solving a problem. So I'd rather look at what the policy says itself, try to align the language with what I think the board is okay with, and then forget about a disclaimer because then you don't need one if the policy itself is okay. Sure, that makes good sense. And I think you said this in the presentation today, but we could talk about this topic for hours on end, probably, but we don't have the luxury of that time here today. Can you share one or two key considerations for approaching how to structure a multi-state handbook? Yeah, a lot of it, I, I will say, just comes down to business preference and business decision. This is definitely one where there is not a right or a wrong answer. The common approaches that we see are you either have one, I'll call it a master handbook, and then state addenda or state writers that, that go along with that. that. That, I would say, is the most common approach for handbooks that have a lot of states they need to touch on. The alternative is we incorporate some of those state-specific requirements into the handbook itself. The more jurisdictions you have, the bigger the handbook gets, the more issues you have to address, the more internal conflict that could arise between and even within policies. So again, no right or wrong answer. It's just figuring out what are we trying to accomplish through this handbook? And then how do we best get across that finish line in a way that makes sense for us? Absolutely. And what about acknowledgments? Are those important? Acknowledgments of handbooks, any newly rolled out policies, the, there are certain that have legal implications. So harassment policies, at-will disclaimers, these are things that from a legal perspective, we need to make sure we are really thinking through capturing those acknowledgments the best way we possibly can. Um, placing those aside, it's just making sure that people are on notice of the deal, that they understand here's the policy, so that way when we get to the end of the road and we need to point to something and say, you knew the deal, 
now, now you are getting in trouble for not following the deal or whatever it may be. Um, just having something that you can point to as evidence that they did in fact receive, acknowledge, have an opportunity to review, ask questions about the policy is important. If you're gonna do it electronically, which is becoming a more and more common trend, make sure that we're capturing a valid electronic signature. That's a separate legal compliance issue that, no surprise, has many different implications across many different jurisdictions. So it's another multi-state issue wrapped into this multi-state issue. Well, thank you, Lucas. That was great information. Our next guest is Christine Townsend from our Chicago and Milwaukee offices. She is the co-chair of Ogletree's Unfair Competition and Trade Secrets Practice Group, and she has been a guest on our podcast before, so nice to have you back, Christine. Thanks for asking me, Deanna. <laughs> Christine, many employers have restrictive covenant agreements that cover things like non-disclosure of confidential information, non-solicitation of employees or customers, and non-competition. Does one size fit all when it comes to these agreements? It does not, <laughs> unless you have a very, very narrowly drafted, very uh, probably non-helpful agreement in many states. These are very state-specific issues, and we've seen over the last decade a proliferation of new state law and sometimes uh, new state cases interpreting what the law has been um, that has really limited employers' abilities to make these one-size-fits-all agreements. We're seeing an increasingly hostile environment for restrictive covenant agreements in many states. Absolutely, and in knowing that, what are some things to start with? Like maybe asking the why or the purpose of the agreement? We always want to establish with clients and companies why they need them, what business interests they're looking to protect, what they're going to do with them, who's going to sign them, and what is their real concern they're getting at. Obviously, employers aren't able to just say, you have to work here forever and you can never work at a competitor or ever solicit our clients for the rest of time in all of the world, right? We understand that, but what are we trying to accomplish with these agreements? And where are we, right? And where are our employees? Because if we've got 98% of our population in California, well, that's not a great environment for restrictive covenant agreements. You pretty much get trade secrets. If we are in a state that allows us to have a non-solicitation agreement, have a non-competition agreement, we want to be able to do so. If we have certain provisions around confidentiality, of course, trade secrets are protected by trade secret law, and generally in agreements will often say nothing in this agreement limits our rights under state or federal trade secret law. But confidential information is a different thing, and do we want to be able to protect that and clearly outline for our employees what we consider to be confidential information? We see a lot of times with salespeople, they think that the information is theirs and it's really the company's. And so we want to make sure that employees understand what we consider as confidential information. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And could an employer have different levels of agreement for different types of employees? Absolutely. A lot of employers have every employee sign a non-disclosure agreement because they're accessing confidential information, they're on their computer systems, they have the ability to access this information. Then there's some employers who say, look, our sales team, we really need a non-solicitation with our sales team to protect the goodwill that we've built in our customer or client base. 
And then at the non-compete level, maybe we need those for senior leadership. We might not need them for everyone. It really depends on the company and, and what fits the business needs of the company in the confines of state law. And in most states, the competition piece is the most difficult to enforce, it seems. So that's something to think about as well, right? Like, are we going to be able to enforce this agreement? Absolutely. And some states will judicially reform, like your home state of Florida. Some states will not. But some states will enforce separable provisions of agreements. So if your non-compete's invalid, but your non-solicitation agreement is valid, you can at least enforce that portion of the agreement. Understood. And when it comes to quote unquote problem states, I understand it's not just California and Oklahoma anymore. <laughs> can you give some examples of other unique state provisions? Absolutely. So some states have timing requirements. You need to inform these people of the non-compete prior to their start date at certain number of days before their start date with the offer letter. Other states say at-will employment is not sufficient consideration. For a long time, a lot of states said the virtue of you having a job and me not, and not firing you is certainly sufficient consideration for you to sign this agreement. Some states are saying no. Some states are saying yes at the initial um, employment relationship when you start work, but not midstream without a promotion or something else. So we're looking at consideration issues. We're looking at timing issues. The other really important thing that we're looking at over the last couple of years is we've seen an increase in the number of states with low-wage worker statutes. And when we say low-wage worker, we don't actually mean minimum wage or anything like that. We're talking about people who are, in some cases, making six figures who are not you're not eligible to sign an agreement under state law. So Washington, Colorado, Illinois, there's a number of states, Ogletree has a map on this, that have a minimum salary requirement for non-competition agreements. Two states, Colorado and Illinois, also have a separate non-solicitation minimum salary. So it certainly gets complicated <laughs> depending on the different states. So how might an employer structure this type of agreement and potentially develop more than one? Absolutely. So we see companies do a couple different things. But in the last several years with the additional state laws, we see a lot of companies take one agreement to start with, have this as your base agreement. It's probably gonna be a little less than you can get in a state like Florida, but to kind of have one main agreement and then have about a dozen addendums to that agreement. So obviously California, Oklahoma, um, North Dakota, Illinois, some other states where Massachusetts, Washington, Oregon, all have very specific requirements. And the other thing we can do there is we can say, we're gonna outline right in that agreement who is allowed to sign it or who is a, who it covers. So we say, if you make under 108,000, this paragraph doesn't apply to you. So it's a way to deal with those issues without saying, oh man, we just wanted to use this base agreement, but there's a non-competition and a non-solicitation agreement, and we're in the state of Illinois, and this person makes $70,000 a year. In Illinois, someone with seven, who is making less than $75,000 a year is not allowed to sign a non-compete. But by putting that in the addendum and saying, if you make less than 75,000, this paragraph doesn't apply to you, it's a way to deal with that in a way that we can streamline for our business and our human resources professionals the implementation of these agreements. Yeah, that's a great solution. What about assignability if you have maybe a merger or acquisition? 
during the due diligence stage, see how these agreements are drafted, see the various choice of law or state of residence of the employees, and figure out what the laws of assignment are there in that state, because they do vary by state. And some require an additional signature. You have to get the consent of both the assignee and the assignor, no matter what the language is in the actual agreement. So if you're doing a merger and acquisition, which a lot of our clients are frequently doing, I would really encourage you to look at those key agreements in the due diligence phase to one, analyze whether they were enforceable at all, because <laughs> sometimes they might not be, and two, whether you uh, can be assigned those agreements or whether you need to do fresh agreements with the new employees. Absolutely. And you may also want to look at uh, choice of law as well when you're doing that. Absolutely, because <laughs> many states won't enforce the choice of law provision if the law of the state that was chosen is offensive to the public policy of the state where the employee lives. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Christine. Thanks, Deanna. And our third guest today is Elise Johnson, who is a vice president of human resources for a national company. Her company does business in 15 states and has over 6,000 employees. And I'm honored to call Elise both a client and a friend. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm thrilled <laughs> to be here. Can you tell us about how your team is structured and how you approach multi-state compliance? I sure can. Uh, multi-state and multi-jurisdictional compliance is definitely a, you know, a challenge for us. Um, we are a, a company that's experienced rapid growth, 285% uh, larger now than we were five years ago. Wow. Yes. Um, <laughs> my HR team is, is wonderful, but most of the time our heads are spinning because it's just <laughs> constant. Um, so basically, the way our the HR team is structured, we've got a core group um, for benefits, work comp, HRIS, and then I've got human resource business partners who are uh, located in our various regions. Mm -hmm. So um, they'll, they'll cover either one or a number of states and they handle all the day-to-day -day, you know, HR issues. As we acquire new companies, we assess whether we need to bring on a, a brand new HR business partner to, to help them. You know, we rarely inherit uh, an HR professional with our acquisitions because companies that we uh, acquire are typically not um, you know, large enough that they have a dedicated HR person when we bring them on. Mm -hmm. So usually they get assigned to one of our existing HR business partners. Sometimes we have to shuffle around the, you know, the, the workload and, and, and reassign folks, but um, we do have folks who are, who are out there who have some specialized state knowledge and we just keep adding on. And one day we'll add a few more people to the HR team too. <laughs> <Sounds> <laughs> Make our jobs a little easier. <laughs> That's amazing that you've been growing so rapidly. And when you're assigning the HR business partners, is it more by geography or maybe expertise? How do you decide? So that's a interesting question. Yes, we, we typically would do it based on geography. Um, you know, again, we, we when we do expand, we try and stick to an area that is close by where we have operations, although that's not always the case. Expanded into Massachusetts very recently. We don't have uh, you know, any branches nearby. But one of my HR business partners is from Connecticut, so she raised her hand and said, hey, I'd like to take that. So while we typically will do it um, based on geography and, and what makes most sense with our existing team, if I have somebody who's got a you know, special reason that they'd like to be you know, assigned that, maybe for trips home, you know, it's a small perk that I can offer. So. 
Absolutely, that's great. And what about when it comes to your company's use of handbooks or business protection agreements? Um, how do you go about making sure that you're compliant in multiple states? Yes, so that's um, definitely on our agenda for 2023. Currently, we have all versions of our handbook, and that is predominantly due to different PTO and leave laws, whether it's state-driven or just the, the branch operations driven, you know. Some you know, are, are willing to pay the PTO and perhaps others are, are not so much. They, you know, they build their budgets based on that. So we are contemplating and probably very strongly considering moving to a uh, different model where we have the core handbook and the state agenda, as um, Lucas mentioned earlier. And I think that's gonna be a lot easier for us to manage because we'll have, we'll have our core handbook then either as a state law changes or as we move into a new state, we can just add another page. Sure. I'm looking forward to that. So. Sure, absolutely. And that seems extremely important when you're growing through acquisitions like you just explained. Absolutely. Great. It's hard to keep up. It's hard to keep up for sure. I bet. And finally, Elise took her team to the San Diego Zoo as part of their trip to workplace strategies. And I have to ask you, what was the cutest animal that you saw at the zoo? Well, I think the, the highlight of our trip was definitely the polar bear. I don't know if it was cute, though, because he was devouring fish. Oh. They were feeding him. So they were throwing the fish into the, the, the water, into the tank, and the, the polar bear was grabbing the fish and eating it. That's amazing. But it was very up close, and it was kind of impressive. So for sure, we enjoyed that. That's great. Well, thank you, everyone, for being here today, and thank you to my panelists. It was great to have you on this episode, and stay classy, San Diego. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.